1: it's, it's, on. it's Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 325, and you know what that means? It's a k- 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 quarter quest. Sure.
2: Don't cannons do go off when you're in the Hunger Games, right? When people die. Yeah, when
1: you die. Oh, shit. But okay. I don't think anyone's going to die in this episode.
2: Um, well, maybe uh, Katie Except is actually wearing her Her fire dress right now, and she's coming mm-hmm. in a chariot down into the pit.
1: That's true. Uh, It's the week of uh, November 18th, by the way, just so we're all up to date on where we are in time. And the fact that it is November 2020 is kind of the reason of our theme for this quarter. Well, we decided to go with movies that lived up to our expectations. We picked this theme before the election, kind of not knowing how it would turn out. And if you listen to our pre-election episode, we were all a little anxious uh, and it felt like we could talk about this kind of either way. I think we're all great. I think we're I was anxious in the, the post that we are.
2: Episode two. Are you still so
1: anxious? Curious. I'm. Fi- I'm finally feeling a little better. Mm. Thanks
2: for asking. It's coming. I'm coming I'm down.
1: Glad. We'll see how any of these movies. Yeah, I, I, affect that movie.
3: Can, can I leave just on that note? The quickest of postscripts to our last episode, which is that my my uh, fear that I felt in the days right after the election has seesawed away from fear and towards white hot anger. Uh, and not for the first time in the last mm. four years. But uh, that, you know, I'm no longer um, afraid of the the slow-moving coup as I was uh, last Monday or Tuesday whenever we recorded. Um, but now it's just been replaced by burning rage anyway.
1: Well, you should translate that burning rage into these movies, many of which are about the white male power structure that runs <laughs> our country. Oh, uh, I Come on! Kind of- that is
0: done! Totally true. God. Uh, you're right because one is about white male power structure existing in space, and uh, mine you. specifically is basically about male power fantasy as a power
1: structure, It's literal energy that runs a city. Actually, <laughs> uh, I guess the movies themselves aren't uh we put them on Twitter, so we're talking about Citizen Kane, The Avengers, The Master, and Ad Astra. Um, and I guess I'm starting with Citizen Kane, right? I just yeah. jump right into it. Jump right into it. Great. Uh, I picked Citizen Kane, uh, partly because I've been thinking about it, because Mank is coming out in a few weeks, and this is not about Mank. We'll talk about that later. Um, Mank. But for Mank, it was a movie that I think the first AFI top 100 list came out in, like, 1998 or so. Like, we were all, like, in middle school. I think that was the point in my life where I had just started realizing, like, I cared about movies beyond just, like, going to see whatever was at the Multiplex with my friends. Um, And so that list was there, and it kind of just, like, staring you in the face. And at that point in my life, I'd probably seen, like, eight movies on the AFI Top 100. And
3: that that list came out at a time before lists were, like, 40% of our economy, I mean, yeah. it was oh, like oh yeah, a, that list
1: was like it was a the monumental list.
3: event, and yeah, uh, yes, I think generally, generationally, the decision to put I had a copy of it, one, pasted to my wall or like yeah. taped to yeah. my wall. I was that, doing a checklist back in the
2: day.
1: That adds up. Yeah, I well, so I had the list as well, and I don't think I ever methodically went through it because I like was interested in movies, but I didn't have any guiding person in my life and I like I think if I had sought it out more and like obviously the internet existed by then so I could have like found someone to be like hey here's a good movie to watch but I was kind of like going to Blockbuster and watching the movies that friends of mine had seen and like piecing it together so I get to college and went to Wesleyan partly because they had a film program where I was like oh I'm interested in film maybe I can major in it I know some things and then very quickly learned that I knew nothing like and that was the point of film class in some ways like you have to take these two intro to film history classes and you start in the science or you start in the you know, the 1890s with the Lumiere brothers. Um, And there's all kinds of shit you don't know. And I remember how bad the papers that I wrote were, where I was trying to be like, well, the black, uh, the black in this black and white film means bad. And the white in this black and white film means good. And the professor very nicely being like, what in the movie tells you this? (laughs) Um, Which is, I still think about to this day. Um, And hopefully everyone goes through this. It wasn't just me like coming from my like moderately good South Carolina public school and realizing I didn't know anything. Um, but so Citizen Kane is at the top of the AFI list, and so the first awareness I might have ever had of it was when when it was at the top of that list. It was just like sitting on the Mount Rushmore, you know what's there, you know it's the greatest movie ever, and it has this sense of being like, here is the thing you must see to be a thoughtful person, but it's not going to be any fun, and you're going to have to force yourself to sit through it. Um, and I don't, like. I mean, we'll get to you guys. Um, and so when I finally watched it, it was in film class. It was in the intro to film, um, I guess... They broke it up into pre-1945 and post-1945. So I guess it was at the very end of the pre-1945 one. Um, And I walk into it knowing it's the greatest movie ever made and then come out of it being like, holy shit, is that actually the greatest movie ever made? And having seen it after, I think I took the classes in reverse order. So I did post-45 and then pre-45. And I had just been studying film for a year. I had been kind of learning what shots look like and how when a camera is put somewhere, it's put there for a reason and how... When in the 40s, they put them in camera in different places than they do now. And you like just seeing that a film is assembled by people, which I think is something you do have to learn how to see, uh, whether it's taught to you or you do it on your own. And Citizen Kane just has shot after shot and moment after moment where you're like, oh, they did that. Oh, wow, that's happening. Oh, like, oh, this is the language of the screenplay that it's taught me to look for this thing and it's doing something else. Um, And. I'm not going to like break open criticism of Susan Kane here because a lot of people have written about it and I didn't re- revisit as much of it as I should have. But it just it feels like it cracked my head open in a way that it was meant to. And the fact that like however many years of being like, this is the greatest movie ever made, I came to it and found out, yeah, that's true. Um, I thought it again as I rewatched this. like It held up in every possible way that I could have imagined. So uh, if somehow you haven't gotten to that point on your list and you're listening to this, do not no. wait. Citizen
3: Kane. Katie, now you – so much of what we're talking about now has to do with the expectations that we bring into these movies. And I think you had a, an understandable uh, fear or assumption seeing this for the first time that because it was this this revered thing that it was really going to be a chore to sit through. It was going to feel like homework and so on. <laughs> were, were you someone at that point in your life who had n- – been disillusioned by the novels you were assigned to read in school or the movies that were on previous curriculums like was there not something that was canonical that you had been forced to engage with that you had actually felt was relevant to your life and and moving oh totally
1: yeah i mean like i think like plenty of books in like high school and then by then in film class i'm sure there's stuff i had watched that none of which i can what was the best book you
3: read
2: in high school
0: the one where they shoot the dogs what is it? Where the red fern grows?
1: You were that in high school. They like shoot the dog. I thought they shoot school.
2: the dog in Old
0: Yeller. They shoot the dog in. They also red fern fern shoot grows. the dog yeah, in Old
2: Yeller. Yeah, they definitely shoot the dog in. Where Does the red Dave fern Matthews grows. shoot the dog in the movie version of Where the Red Fern Grows? That he was. Don't it, drink that the water,
0: grew. Old Yeller two. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs>
1: Um, maybe the best work I read was The Great Gatsby.
3: They shoot the dog in buns. That's a hell of Here a Here I book. am,
1: like, choosing The Great Gatsby and Citizen Kane, like a real novel. I mean, no, uh, but
3: I mean, it's, it's, it's o- obvious for a reason, though. I think that there is a similar, I don't want to be too reductive about this, but I do think there's a similar kind of zest. It's uh, like a popcorn movie and then a popcorn that- book. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, they are both eminently enjoyable uh, beyond their sad
1: men and mansions.
3: That is true as well. Uh, There's probably a lot of. I'm sure there have been papers (laughs) written in colleges like Wesleyan about the connections between those two texts. I'm
1: shocked I didn't write it honestly. Uh, No, I definitely knew by then that like old like. Tough quote unquote movies can be great movies, um, and I think I was excited to get to Citizen Kane for that reason. Like I, you know, hadn't gotten to it because, as always, there's just like this endless list of movies to watch. Um, and then basically came out of it telling everyone in my dorm room, like, "Hey, have you seen Citizen Kane?" And like, <laughs> I think if you like go outside of like the world of film people, like a lot of people our age haven't seen Citizen Kane. It's not something that you're going to encounter even as much as Gone with the Wind, weirdly. Um. Which, you know, they're they're from the same period, but occupy really different spaces in film history. Probably. But don't you think that's yeah. because
2: we lack the AFI list? Like, what's interesting about the AFI list is that it's not... I think when I was younger, I saw the AFI list as quite definitive. Or, like, this is what art film would be all about. But it's really just, like, it's Hollywood film. It's not esoteric, like... Today, I'd be if the, if film comment put out 100 movies that you have to see, that list would intimidate me today. And I would be scared of what mm. number one, the experience of number one, the like seven hour Romanian film that would probably be number one. I would be intimidated by that. But, but, but lists
3: have become so sort of contextual yeah. at this point. I mean, I think there was a, as basic in retrospect as that was the really list. any AFI list must be, especially that one. I think there was also a kind of purity, you know, I mean, the Sight and Sound list had existed for a while, but that list was sort of, uh, you know, it was burdened by a lot of obvious expectations, a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of, you know, old white men making these movies because that's who made movies in America in the period of time this list was really taken seriously. But, you know, there was also sort of a, a lack of trying to seem cool or posturing or negotiating what would be on it. And, you know, I would I would love to read a film. I would love to read anything from film comment these days, to be honest. Uh, But uh, I I think any, any of those lists, even the lists that we all write are negotiating a lot of expectations and trying to put forward a certain tone. Um, And sometimes the things that you put on that list have more to do with like the narrative around it than they do, you know, what, like, like a mixtape. I mean, like some may not be the best song, but it's the best song for that moment. Um, and so there is a kind of purity to this list. but And then, you know, in the Sight and Sound list, Vertigo recently overtook it. and Or Vertigo, it actually wasn't – Citizen Kane was the number one on Sight and Sound. I believe it was something else before Vertigo that. But now, right. now but it's Vertigo. At the,
1: I googled AFI 500 and they had a 10th anniversary list, which was in 2007. So that was a while ago. And Citizen Kane remained unchanged in its top spot. And like Casablanca and The Godfather switched slots, which is like, okay – I don't, I don't get the <laughs> point of that. Like either way. Given still some right time there. we feel we made an error here.
2: <laughs> well, that, sure. That kind of gets at a question that I had for all of you about the specific, specifics of Citizen Kane rewatching it, knowing that um you know, rewatching a, it. Good, we sir.
0: Java and I saw it for the first time
2: okay, last night. Ah. First time. Hey, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is awesome. And then we could talk about your expectations. But I think what's interesting is, yeah, it's always held this revered position, the greatest movie of all time, often been called. Even in 2007, AFI is putting it number one movie of all time. I'm kind of curious if you think, is Citizen Kane still like the greatest achievement in film today does it check every box is it is it a, the greatest film of all time it's hard you know this is a subjective medium we'd all have our own favorites we do it every year but um does it still feel like super accomplished or does it actually feel like one of the great milestones in film history uh, i'm curious how it plays like does it play with that kind of grandeur does it play with the ultimate the, the weight that it carries on its back the dave were you in be, java were
3: you in java entertained
0: were you entertained uh, Yes, incredibly so. Um Did you clap sort-
2: like uh Kane at the uh at the opera?
0: Uh, <laughs> good No, meme. because everybody else would have been clapping with me. Um I finally I'm sure understood you have been that the meme. Only one clapping. Yeah, I finally understood Although that everyone uses a
3: bit that Everyone uses that gif incorrectly because it's it's meant to be just the one man, in, you know, seriously right, right, exactly. clapping. In the, I was like, the
0: oh, my God, I understand this meme of the new whole Why level. aren't people using the meme of Bernstein,
2: like, half asleep in the audience, tearing at his paper out of sheer boredom? I feel like we don't yeah, get that the, hilarious laugh out loud moment of this movie. First of all, well, there's could... a,
0: a lot more memes that could be milked out of this movie. I was like, how did I go through my entire life, like, loving, like, the history of, like, horror movies and enjoying like production things and not know there's this weird cockatoo jump scare in the middle of Citizen
3: <laughs> That like there works There are perfectly. some intense jump scares.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I It was a, a couple of times I, you know, I had to say things out loud like, oh my God, it's like in the, he's going to get up and move to that chair because the whole layout of this scene is telegraphing like how the business manager is going to like walk through it or um uh, some of the matte effects that they like were pulling off by like shining lights to make it look like uh people were moving their heads in like the big rally. Uh there are tricks that are still like amazing, but then also the storytelling is really good. So I think Patches the answer to your question is as more and more movies get made, I think there will be like a great a different evolving greatest movie of all time, but it definitely sticks milestone and at some point that Venn diagram was a complete circle. Uh, I don't know if it is anymore. But like, just the it's- things they're able to pull off in Citizen Kane are still amazing now. Just knowing what I know about what was capable of movie making in the 40s.
1: Yeah, I don't think, like, you know, if you're going to put Vertigo at the top of your personal list, like, sure, that totally works. But there's nothing in Citizen Kane watching it recently that's like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, this doesn't, like, stick the way that it should. Like, especially because it's about a man dying alone in his Florida mansion surrounded by, like, trinkets because he wasn't loved by anyone in his life. Like, it is super relevant to right now. But I don't think you need to know a lot about classical Hollywood filmmaking to know that it is an accomplishment. Like, there's a lot of things that it helps if you've seen, like anything else from the 40s but like how modern it feels i think is a huge part of its accomplishment and that hasn't gone away for me in the first half especially
2: the kind of like the document or the mockumentary aspect of it feel and the camera work is just it's very verite in a in a unsettling way like you, you haven't seen anything like that in that era
3: i don't know verite is the word i'd use but i know what you mean but i also you know not to distract from the very important points that you and katie are both making but can we just take one moment to acknowledge the scene where they print the newspaper, the two the two editions of the morning newspaper, one of which says Cain wins, and the other one says Cain defeated fraud at polls. Fraud at the polls.
1: It's really.
3: I mean, little this this on the nose, Orson Welles.
0: This
1: is, this is this <laughs> it really is.
0: is.
2: <laughs> Trump has cited that this is his favorite movie. Yes, and it, which and is it's really fun. it actually seems like he's completely molded his personality and life Except around for, this movie.
3: In the uh, in the. Errol Morris clip where that, you know, opinion has been consecrated for all time in this documentary that er- Errol Morris made about these people's favorite movies. It's so overwhelmingly evident that Trump did not even begin to understand, uh, this no. movie. I mean, his no whole way. takeaway was that Kane should have picked a different woman. And <laughs> there was a man um, who was
0: very successful and he made all the money and he made so much money. He built himself a castle and everyone loved him and he always had visitors.
3: <laughs> and I also got to say, it kind of feels, and now that we know Trump a little, too well over the last 4 years that
1: Way too, way he too was well uh
3: it, it's hard to picture him really watching all that intently during the second half of this movie where i think some valuable lessons could have been learned <laughs> i think he may have tuned yeah. out after the uh, the newspaper scene you just put that that image in his back pocket for later
1: that's how we got where we are Yeah. Um, yeah i don't like I, don't, I feel like it's you go too much further in susan kane and you really get yourself dragged down but it's like it's beautiful the cinematography in this movie, like Greg Toland shares, the cinematographer shares a title card with Orson Welles at the end of the movie, which you know for like someone who's an egomaniac like Orson Welles, like that's a big decision to make. Um, He also filmed like one of my favorite movies from this period, The Best Years of Our Lives, which is like a much more traditional movie, but like completely gorgeous. Um, Yeah, I think the visuals of it are what make it grab you like I'd be really interested to show it to a 19 year old like I was when I saw it who isn't necessarily like a film studies major but like is open to it like if you have someone who's never seen a black and white movie before and doesn't want to try it's probably not going to work um but it has this quality to it that I think just, like, really leaps across the decades. Well, I think it has uh, the it energy
2: does. of someone who was 25 when they made it. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yes. Well, it also it really the audacity of it, sport. where it's like,
0: well, we're going to open up, but I'm going to be an old magic makeup, and you're going to be able to tell the timeline by how good the makeup is. It's like, <laughs> okay. But, you know, it works.
2: It's, it does it's... kind of hold up. I'm surprised that the old age makeup
1: I know. It's pretty good. Okay. The, it's not the, just him. Like, I had forgotten how many other people are in old age yeah. makeup through the whole
3: thing. I'd say the old age makeup is a little dodgy towards the end. I mean, they weren't maybe filming this for, for HD uh, to be watched on iTunes <laughs> down the line. But the makeup for like 70% of the movie is incredible. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, the gumption at... Really everything Orson Wells did required, but especially to play this role over the course of ever many decades and to be honestly like fucking hot as shit in the first uh, 20 minutes and just like, you 100%. know, and then, and then just bloat out and fall apart over the course of, uh, over the course of the rest of the movie. It's a completely believable transformation in a way that I feel like Hollywood is still, and now, you know, invoking CGI to get a lesser version of the same effects still failing to mimic
1: do we want to talk about david fincher talking shit about orson wells or is that because like is that already feel like old news
3: it feels, uh, david, it feels like, like it news. was never news i mean he wasn't <laughs> talking shit about it. He was saying that even if you're a genius you're still an idiot when you're 25 and that's true and uh even uh, i'm sure that i'll say the same thing in 10 years about being 35 i mean that's what life's about but especially when you're when you're in Orson Welles' position, making Citizen Kane, um, I don't think that David. I think David Fincher's comment. Wait, why did Fincher or, say
2: that? I didn't really get that that story. Was, why was he saying he was an idiot?
3: He wasn't. He was just saying when you're 25, you don't know what you don't know, even if what you do know happens to be a hell of a lot that most of us will ever figure out. And I think that that is very true. And he was talking about how Orson Welles' subsequent he you know the the idea of Orson Welles' subsequent career is that. Um, He was control was taken away from him by the various powers of B in movies like Mm. Chimes of Midnight or Mr. Arkadin or F for Fate whatever the case might be certainly uh, uh, The Magnificent Ambersons above all else were uh, interfered with by the studio and Fincher was saying you know so much of it was just the unstoppable hubris of a 25 year old Orson Welles making Citizen Kane and uh, it being recognized as a masterpiece more or less right off the hop even if its reputation has only grown and him Mm being drunk on that cachet um and maybe getting the best of him because you know I've been listening to a lot of i was listening to katie rich on blank checks robert zemeckis podcast and so much of the mm-hmm. narrative with that is about someone who likes to be challenged who likes people to tell him no and question his ideas and that was not orson welles shtick he was sort of the opposite and uh that sometimes blew up in his face um but I don't think as Cain. it did for
1: Charles Foster Kane. Mm. Exactly.
3: What? No,
2: I mean maybe maybe to to start wrapping this up. I just, Katie, what was your, what was your takeaway from Citizen Kane? What is it? Like huh. about for you back when you watched it or rewatching it, I'm just I'm just curious what you like get out of it. I think it's a wildly entertaining movie, and there are other movies we will talk about today that uh, maybe even defy meaning. And I'm just like enjoying in a visceral level similar to Citizen Kane. Um, but I, I'd be curious what your takeaways were. Yeah, I
1: think if there's anything it lacked for me on a second go round is like an emotional impact. Like I think the reveal of Rosebud has its you know is is justifiably famous, but you don't have like there's not as much human connection at the center of it although I think the amount of human connection in it like in um Dave we were talking about his relationship with the uh the theater critic played by Joseph Cotton and like that the intensity of that relationship and how much they rely on each other and how it gets poisoned um is part is part of the power of the ending um I I mean I think it's the the technical accomplishments of it and just the like as you watch the script unfold and kind of being like how do they do that how do they do that how like it kind of dazzles you from from scene to scene. Um, I think that was the the biggest part of it for me watching it again, having forgotten a lot of it from the first time I saw it. Um, just kind of being like, oh, wow, it, it, it lived up to that reputation this time and this time and this time until the end.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the scene that kind of knocked me out the most this time. And I think watching him finish the review, uh, the scene where mm-hmm. his buddy is writing the pan of his wife's opera show, and... His buddy's too drunk, so Bernstein. And then um, he takes the page and he just does the review himself and is tapping. Like they do that close-up shot on him with enough defocus. And the, the, his the Bernstein walks out from behind and you just know he's destroying. He's like, he can't stop. He needs to write the perfect bad review. Um, Something about that this time. I just saw a lot of David there, you know?
3: Wow! Um, <laughs> wow! <laughs> you know, it's if you took out all of the money from uh, Charles Foster Kane, <laughs> you would uh, and left only the the black hole at his center. Maybe you would be left with me <laughs> and the least interesting version of that story ever told. But hmm. I do think you see parallels of, and oftentimes when a movie like this is anointed as sort of a generational masterpiece, it has a lot of commonality with with Citizen Kane. I'm thinking of There Will Be Blood or The Social Network about these sort of great empty men. Um, it's a, it feels like a very American story and one that continues telling and telling and telling itself. And But watching Citizen Kane again yesterday to prepare for this podcast and uh, that one moment we talked about at the newspaper in particular, it just felt like Okay, we don't need any movies about the Trump era, actually. <laughs> like,
1: we already yeah, have them. Yeah. The story
3: has already been told um, in the abstract anyway. And uh, we don't, you know, Brendan Gleeson, God bless him. We, we don't need any oh, wow. more of that. Um, wow. You know, from the Comey rule, stick to Knuckles McGinty with an N. Uh, and we, we already have the definitive movie about the psychology that led to something like this, at least from the top. So,
0: And it's his favorite
3: Yeah, whatever that means. He also, you know, claims to love Bloodsport and would force Eric to fast forward through all the non-fight scenes. And we watched Bloodsport this weekend, not necessarily in his honor. And uh, I would love to see Trump compete in the Kumite. That's all I'll say.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Avengers. Yeah, me.
0: Way back in the early 90s. A young Dave Gonzalez got addicted to Spider-Man comics around the same time that the nation got addicted to the idea that a comic book cover with a silver cover would someday be worth as much as, like, Spider-Man number one. Collect, they said, and the comic book companies instead decided to super diversify into a whole bunch of reprintings and nebulous storylines and eventually self emulated uh, on the wave of their bubble, uh, and what we were sort of left with were people who got uh addicted to comic book storytelling of a certain degree that uh, is maybe not looked upon favorably by people who've been comic fans uh, in other parts of their lives because I enjoy a good solo story, a good single arc a good artist drawing something. But I think where the real artistry and interest comes from me is when heroes would cross over or there would be giant events and I would have to keep up with the different storylines of these events, these different comic books. And granted, it's all a pyramid based of storytelling uh, with capitalism as a cornerstone. A pyramid scheme, if you will. Yes, there you go. Um, but as uh, that sort of fervor um, caught the attention of the nation just as like a dollar sign, uh, it gave birth to this idea around the same time that movies were um, starting to think of sequels beyond like num something number two. If you have like a sequel in the 80s, what the producers and everybody thinks you want is you want more of the exact same and don't change the title or anything or people won't know what they're signing up for and buying a ticket for. Um, so the idea of sequels sort of starts to uh, balloon uh, towards the end of the, the 1990s. And then I think, uh, you know, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy just sort of existing as one narrative chunk uh, fed this idea that maybe things could exist that way. And the national consciousness is, becomes obsessed with stuff like lost has its end figured out by the time it starts its beginning. And there's all those comic book fans there that essentially know these guys are just, like, making it up as they go along to try to get you to buy more things. So imagine my surprise in, uh, like, late 2008 when Iron Man has been a financial success. The Hulk has come out with a Robert Downey Jr. scene at the end. And it really looks like Marvel's going to be able to steamroll its way into making an Avengers movie. There's going to be a Thor movie. It's going to be a Captain America movie. But like three or four years down the line, they say they're going to make an Avengers movie and it all sounds dumb. At that point, (laughs) I'm talking to like you guys. I know that like movie sequels are, you know, still kind of dicey uh, commercial products. Uh, There isn't sort of any interconnected storytelling. Superhero movies are like Spider-Man 2 is generally considered like the best one or maybe like the Donner Superman. We have a limited uh, you know, palettes of uh what we were able to experience as superhero movie. So the Avengers sounded like a horrible idea. And uh I saw Thor, and it wasn't really my flavor, but neither was Thor, so that was fine. I saw Captain America, which I really enjoyed, but I think called the Rocketeer 2 uh up until Avengers came out, because that's more how it played and I wasn't really? like a huge I mean it's not it's still accurate. Um <clears throat> And then one of my favorite memories, because the first person I know who got to see Avengers was David Ehrlich. And I remember that
3: day very well.
0: <laughs> came, came out and seemed to have liked it. And I knew at this point from having done this podcast that, you know, David Ehrlich and comic book movies didn't really mesh. So I allowed myself to have a modicum of hope uh, <laughs> there with the, the Ehrlich endorsement. And then watching it all fall together, um, luckily I saw it in 3D because the movie's visually hampered by Joss Whedon being told he needs to make a 3D movie so he thinks he could just stick a camera in a static space and have the space speak for itself, which might work in 3D but doesn't translate so well (laughs) as we're living with more dynamically shot uh, superhero movies.
1: What a weird era that was. Yeah.
0: And it kind of messes with a lot of the phase one movies. Well, we could talk about this, but... It looks a lot better than I remember. Well,
2: I mean, also, I
3: wouldn't give to go and see some post converted three D garbage at a movie theater right now.
1: <laughs> sure, yes,
0: uh, but yeah, Flash and then the Titans. I, I think the movie- Titans will clash, baby. <laughs> One of the other benefits of Avengers is it uh, starts on its weakest foot. So unless you walk out, you know, being really bored before the Avengers assemble. I think the movie manages to grasp on some momentum, and then, like against all odds, I think the movie works because there isn't a bunch of um, comic booky storylines. Uh, the comic book would usually, you know, bring the team together for a very plot-based reason uh, that, in this case, would just be the Tesseract. Uh, but because they have the whole loki getting them to fight aspect and loki is a character that was already established in thor avengers actually gets to be a much more character-based movie and so it actually i think sheds uh, a lot of its uh comic book roots which was a big deal at that time because there was a period of time in comic book movies where it was just like what we need is an adaptation uh and you know then we got like Batman v Superman as an adaptation of a Frank Miller comic, which makes no sense. But I think the Avengers was able to like stick the landing in terms of proving its thesis that you can apply like that comic book model to a movie and still have that like end result be enjoyable. I think the Avengers does a good job of being enjoyable, even if you hadn't seen the previous movies. I don't know if anyone's going to approach it that way now, but I also think it, it works in that sense. So uh, I think it might have been the perfect movie to live up and exceed my expectations. But I think I'd like to throw to David, who so influenced my hope, as to see <laughs> what he thought, maybe revisiting it or the first time. If David, where did you qualifies. see this
3: I saw it, it. I don't remember what kind of screening it was, but it was a couple weeks early and it was at the AMC 25 at Times Square. And it was not... You know, we, we elites in the press, usually we go to screenings, and even if there are the hoi polloi there, you know, there's a section reserved for us, yeah. and we can show up right before the movie starts, and so on. No, no I showed up... this was a morning, right? This was a morning. I showed yes. up, like... I think like,
1: I was at the same I think screening. I was there,
3: too. Like, three yeah. hours before and it started.
2: Wait, did... Well, I mean, my and, memory of that screening was it was in the morning, and we were all fired up to finally watch The Avengers, the impossible movie, and then the computer, like, the... The, the
3: computer the file. DCP
2: the got DCP deleted. got deleted. It got deleted and we waited yeah. like twenty minutes to watch it. I don't
3: I I don't remember that part. It could have happened. That's definitely happened to me so many times that uh, it's hard to remember where and when it was expecting it was some sort of fan screening I think. There was some other business they screened before it the room was full of rowdy Marvel oh, that's nerds. A, that's a good way to see it. Yeah and I had been like totally non by by uh all of the previous movies, even Captain America, which I've really come around on since. And uh um yeah, it's amazing and Iron Man made, I thought like, was fine.
2: One good movie. One out of like what? Four five yeah, I mean, movies like, and then Avengers.
3: Our wow. expectations were maybe a little lower then, but Thor, I mean I saw all these <laughs> movies again at the Marvel Marathon a couple years ago, and Thor is terrible and the Hulk, of course, is just, you know, unwatchable. And so uh I don't really I think I was there, the hype you know it was I was in this field. it seemed like a good thing to see um, and for like you know everything was sort of working and popping, and the characters were clicking a little bit more than they had, and they had great chemistry together uh for the first a hundred and plus minutes or so, but uh, it was really the the Battle of New York sequence, which patches has really written the definitive piece on um Aww, about how they did it is uh was was really just. Like my, I, I felt for those twenty five minutes, or however long it is, like I was anyone else in that room. <laughs> like, like, uh, like these characters actually meant something to me, and that I was witnessing something that I had been dreaming of my entire life. Which, of course, I hadn't. But uh, it, it was just like so ecstatic. Um, and every beat just kills. And hearing, you know, when when Hulk punches uh thor for the first time in grand central it's just like you know it was like fucking Beatlemania. you know <laughs> it was uh, it was it was electric and exciting um and uh it it is the reason why i was so disappointed which is not an adjective i would expect to have used about age of ultron when we eventually got there <laughs> um but uh yeah no that that is that is definitely a movie that exceeded my expectations
1: Awesome. I'm trying to find any tweets about the file getting deleted. Uh, wow. I did not tweet about it, uh, but I did find my tweet about it in the middle of the day, you know, day in April. But uh, anyway, no one cares about this. you. Found so your own you tweet
0: from 2012.
1: Yeah, use advanced Twitter search, man.
0: I'm just what what, what was your tweet?
1: I, oh now I've gotten away from it. So I called it the first Marvel movie I would happily see again in a heartbeat. Oh, here we oh. go. The Avengers is everything you've heard. Witty, spry, well-acted, perfectly paced, hilarious. The first Marvel awesome. movie I'd instantly see again. I was a real Peter Travers in my tweets. Yeah. The thrill <laughs> of the summer. Very retweetable. Uh, you know, I just wanted to get that, that clout.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if it thematically meshes as well with uh, everything else we're going to be talking about today. Unless, you know uh tony stark is the the villain of the entire mcu I mean, which i'm is, willing to accept
1: it is interesting to me to revisit like given everything that's come since and like yeah. i am by no means as like well versed in the marvel movies as davis but like it's so small and contained and like you know in some ways kind of like brinky looking um because of when it was made um and you just you watch that and then you like you know watch the the end game clip with Sean Connery and Ruth Bader Ginsburg superimposed over people that you're just like, how did we go (laughs) to that? It's a weird, in in like eight years. How did we go from one
0: space rock to six space rocks and everyone was cool with it?
1: (laughs) Listen, I spent years being like, am I going to have to care about the Infinity Gems? Am I going to have to do it? You're going to make me do it? Thanos is a fucking thing. And then it was, and it was fine. Um But it did like it. it, Avengers feels more like me sized and all everything that came after. I'm just like, okay, I can keep up. I promise I can do this. But I appreciated the scale of it, revisiting it. Does
2: Avengers feel like any other kind of movie? This is, I was, I was, I was trying Mm -hmm. to find like, what is its inspiration? What is. What is it connected to in, money. in film history? It doesn't feel like. Yeah, I know <laughs> money
1: is
0: is a good bedrock for
2: it. But Stopping. This is not
3: the Cree or whoever. But but Cree.
0: Abbott in Costello voices meet Frankenstein. Does I, I... it
1: not feel like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and this like group of people who are coming together in the in the name of a greater force?
0: House of Frank. House of Dracula. <laughs> I guess that's a good comparison. I mean, Joss
2: Whedon often. I mean he got a lot of flack at the time I think for for making television for making a, a, a TV type movie um I do think that the cinematography it's odd, oddly enough I this movie was shot by um Seamus McGarvey who did um he does the the Joe Wright movies where he did Anna Karenina he's done a lot of like gorgeous looking movies and I remember Mm. at the time thinking this movie kind of looked so stale um, it it kind of
3: looks like agents of shield when they're they're standing still
2: it does and but now I mean maybe it's watching it at home and maybe it's thinking about everything that's come after it but I do kind of like the big bold frames Whedon chooses to to shoot the movie in like this boxy very comic page looking like there's nothing like this movie before or after there's nothing like this is not a spielberg mimicking big action movie it doesn't feel like roland emmerich uh it doesn't feel like i, I don't know just what what is this movie like it's pretty singular the
1: Marvel movies that came after don't especially feel like i mean i guess no. the, the iron the iron man movies are probably totally the most similar well it's like i'm talking
3: don't about feel like, like the this.
2: quality of the entire film as this kind of cohesive
3: engine um, After I mean like all those we, beats oh good I was going to say, all those beats that we remember from subsequent Marvel films all feel like they're drafting off of this. I, I totally hear what Patches is saying. I think that like there is kind of a uh, cinematically sui generis feeling about the coming together of these elements um, and like the particular pleasure that sparks. But um, even the best moments from from any of the future Avengers movies and even some of like the other team-based movies or Guardians of the Galaxies and whatnot are all just coasting off the same vibe that they sort of pioneered here.
0: But, yeah, but, uh, you
2: know, go ahead. Sorry, No, Dave, uh, you
0: go. I mean, I think there are certain, like, uh, markers here that they always come back to, but it's, like, it's interesting to see how this movie turned out since now Marvel, I think, is a lot more loose with letting the directors have their own style, but, like, how this, how all the previous movies to this one, with the exception of Captain America, because it gets to be a period piece... Uh, sort of is in this like uh, stylist superhero limbo that we had in the uh, early 2000s, early all the way through the 2000s. And then Avengers, I, I guess, is sort of like what I would say, like peak that. So, so it's interesting. not it's not riffing on a previous like film style. It's like this is what a comic book movie looked like from 2000 to 2012. And then and then something like Venom comes out and it's still using the 2004 tropes and you could instantly see it as being pre-Avengers.
2: But I feel this I feel the exact opposite. That's so oh, interesting. interesting. Um I completely agree with your assessment that like Iron Man and those types of movies are kind of in line with 2000s X-Men where like trying to figure I mean they're getting a little more comic booky by having the right costumes. Um but they're trying to figure out what the house style is going to be. They have to all kind of look the same so they can mesh together. That's always been the narrative and I think that that's what's happened to a worse degree, after the Avengers, uh, as much as I like a Black Panther or an Endgame, all of these movies are the same. All of the, all of these movies look and feel the same to me in a way that the Avengers, looking back at it, watching again, does not. Uh, it feels really, really idiosyncratic in how bizarre the frames like pop. Like I mean, he, I feel like every shot is kind of a, a comic book panel. It's almost like Ang Lee's Hulk in the weirdest way. That might be the closest thing I can I think of that, that feels like a comparison. And, uh, and as Katie was saying, like the writing of the characters feels really unique. I think some of the themes, you know, Marvel has gotten so are in bed with like the American military or maybe I've just been reading more about how Marvel has got like is propaganda we, for the American military. We can't open that can No, but the Avengers yeah, like the Avengers opens this can of worms. The Avengers opens this can of worms. It's it's like there's there's allusions to Hitler in the movie. There's the the freaking American military tries to nuke New York City. There's a lot of like weird qualities, like the reality of uh, setting it in New York is a huge deal, and the reality of the world clashing with comic book stuff is really unique in this way. I just, I feel like the Marvel Universe exists in a pocket after the Avengers, and, and Avengers exists very much in our reality in a
3: weird way. I hate to say we have to move on, and that is the last time we'll ever be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe on this podcast, so <laughs>
0: uh,
1: Congratulations Dave, you did it! Yay!
0: Let's do this. Patches. I want you to close your eyes and recall a word.
2: Mm, I'm going to go with uh, bathtub whiskey or or turpentine. Yeah, I thought
1: (laughs) you were going to say pig fuck. Pig pig. fuck.
2: Oh, what a good line. That's (laughs) talking about meme gifts worthy. Um,
1: You have have used that line for eight years now.
2: Every frame of this movie is intoxicating my brain at all times. Um, The master. I want to talk about the master. The Master is the closest thing that I've seen to 2001 A Space Odyssey ever, maybe? That was my f- big takeaway, rewatching it again this time. And I find this movie to be endlessly rewatchable in a weird way, like popcorn entertainment, like we would rewatch The Avengers. I feel like I always want to turn this on and hear Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams talking and yelling at each other or slapping each other or running around on the beach or pretending to like fuck each other or jizzing into the ocean. Just okay. like, this is a complete pleasure to <laughs> me. Um I I take you back to when I saw this movie, which was uh at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York. Um a snazzy I was there. Pr- I went to the premiere. I went to the premiere of the Ma- Maybe I was sitting next to you, David. I I could have sworn one of these it, podcasting it, friends it wasn't was me. there. It um, is entirely possible. But uh it felt like a golden age moment. I mean I feel like we haven't talked...
1: It was shot on 70mm.
2: So I was going to say, there was hype for The Master. And I think when we're talking about expectations and fulfilling those expectations, uh, it's important to note that this movie was hyped, man. I mean, the trailer... Felt like a uh, – I don't think we would say film Twitter back in 2012, but it was a film Twitter event. I felt – like there are a few trailers in my life that I will vividly remember watching. One of them is the Matrix sequel, like Matrix Reloaded, um, sitting there loading QuickTime files at my high school uh, computer bank or whatever. and Just like I need to see this. And The Master. and And The Master – the hype was so palpable this wasn't just paul thomas anderson this was paul thomas anderson shooting on 70 millimeter doing the scientology movie whoa Scientology! <laughs> he,
3: he cut all of those trailers himself and they were mostly made up of footage that i didn't even know that not in the film and then there were all those early screenings primarily at the music box in chicago um and so the hype the hype right. was very all whispering and
2: we were like yeah. I, I, at the time i felt like this movie's gonna tear down Scientology. That's how big it's gonna be. It's gonna like yeah. just sink its teeth into the jugular of Like
1: we spent a lot of the 2010s being like, "This is it for Scientology. Yeah. This is gonna be the round, and it isn't round." Paul
2: T- or Paul Haggis or whatever wrote that article. Oh, we got him. Yeah. out. now we got him on the brakes. We're gonna get him. Um, and then you got these two titans. You got Joaquin, and this was uh, his comeback after the retirement stunt that was "I'm Still Here," and. Most famously, when I uh, dressed up as Joaquin Phoenix from I'm Still Here at a Halloween party. Mm-hmm. Most uh, famously. Most That's famously. the most
0: famous thing about Joaquin Phoenix. Everyone knows about that costume <laughs> that I did.
2: Um, and then, and then, of course, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's just at the top of his game. And and then you had Annapurna. I, I don't think that we could talk about the hype for this movie without talking about Annapurna uh, being the kind of like savior entity of film like oh my god, we're making classic we're going back to the seventies and Anna yeah. has a
0: earlier in the year Joss Whedon released the Avengers and then just just to save the state of film later in the year
2: I mean Avengers may have had something to do with the hype for The Master Two, like wow, the biggest popcorn movie of all time is this Wait, what the, the Master Two? Like?
3: Oh please. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
2: But the, with Megan Ellison coming in and be like, my wallet could not be deeper. Let's make every cool film possible, and we're going to start w- with Paul Thomas Anderson. I believe it was one of the first ones they did, that Paul Thomas Anderson is going to get to shoot 70 millimeter and do whatever he wants. So we saw this at the Ziegfeld, which if you've never been to New York, if you didn't get to see this theater before it closed down, it was a palace. It was, just a, it was preserved from its kind of golden age. I think it was a was it Broadway theater originally or like stage theater originally? I don't think it was always a movie house, but it certainly they preserved it to to be a perfect place for premieres. And there was no better place to premiere. There was no
3: better place place. to see the room, uh, which I saw at the Ziegfeld. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, that has its own pleasures, too. Um, But yeah, I got to say, seeing it lit up on that screen, seeing the pristine projection, getting to be in a room of that kind of hype and all of us gasping. I walked out of that movie being like, what the hell did I just watch? I don't even know. And I love that feeling. I actually, and I've been, you know, as I've talked about on the podcast a bit, over quarantine, been doing a lot of conversations with my friends about uh, movies. Each week we're watching a movie we're talking about. it, And we hear this a lot just in regular chit chat on, on Twitter or on, in when we get feedback. But like, people like knowing what they're getting. People like... Having, hey, this character makes sense or like it's saying something that makes sense. And like at the end of the movie, I get it. The movie makes sense. And people like that feeling. That's what movie going is to a lot of people. And that's what drama is to a lot of people. And I, and this should be obvious from me liking things like the comedy and I like murky movies. And I don't think there's any movie that's both clear about its intentions and about its purpose, and also murky as hell and and truly the the Rorschach test that uh, quell hey quell Freddie quell um, gets during these during these during the, his sessions, and just like you see anything in this movie, and I really did I feel like my expectations I was blown away, I was dizzy after seeing this movie, and for years, I just think about the master and I always go back to the master and I love watching this movie where two people get to to butt heads. And I can't imagine it's for everyone. And I was curious about, like, what were your takeaways from this? What were your own expectations and uh, reactions to The Master when you saw it back in 2012? And does it play differently today? Does it make more sense? Does it make any sense?
1: <laughs> can I can I go first? Go, please, yes. So I, I went back and read my review, which I was at Blend at the time, and I reviewed it at Toronto. And I remember walking out of it being just like, Like, kind of feeling exactly what you're talking about. Like, I can't make heads or tails in this movie. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I do tend to like a, like, everything is fitting into place feeling in a movie, which is, you know, one of the many pleasures of Citizen Kane for me. And I saw it, and I kind of knew that I liked it. And I think a big part of it is that it made emotional sense. Like, this final scene between them where Philip Seymour Hoffman sings Slow Boat to China. Like, I don't know why it's happening, but I feel it on some level. Um, And it's one of the movies for me that has, like, most significantly... Not improved on a second viewing, but like I watched a second time and was like, oh, I'm with it. Like I I feel like I can get on this movie's level. And that happens to me a lot when I'm like not waiting to see what's going to happen. Like I know where it's going to go, but I can just kind of like ride the feeling of it in a way. Um, and I felt that again, watch- I hadn't rewatched it as much as you have, but like kind of skipping around watching certain scenes, like I-, I feel that rewatchability you're talking about. There's so much in it. It is so beautiful to watch. I watched it on Netflix, having just watched like a screener the night before that was on like a classic sh- shitty streaming platform <laughs> where like all the blacks looked like pixelated. Right. You know what I'm talking about? They turn green. And even on Netflix, it looked phenomenal. Um, And yeah, it it, it's one of the movies that I think taught me relatively early on in my career of writing about movies that this like some things need to sit with you. Like a movie can change so much for you as you revisit it, Um, and it made me want to you know watch it again and again, like you did. And yet,
2: it's it's also a movie where people scream like i'm going to fart on your face or that that looks like a pussy <laughs> and that looks like a cock going into a pussy like this movie is just full of obscenity and behavioral issues and guttural reactions and and P- Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing like Willy Wonka in this movie i feel like he's a total entertainer it's truly unleashing everything that hoffman and phoenix seem to be good at i mean i can't believe we gave Joaquin Phoenix, and Oscar for The Joker, when this <laughs> performance exists, like the gait of Freddie Quell, the mystified looks of Freddie Quell, the physicality, like slapping himself it over and over. So it's just like, it's a performance. Joker. It's very performative. And I think the movie is about being performative and trying to seduce people through performance and um, or or not knowing how to perform, being totally dysfunctional. It's just like, you don't get to see people behave this way ever. And this is what movies are supposed to do, show us something extravagant. I
0: think think? as somebody who is very interested in cults, this movie operates very successfully, like indoctrinating you into a feeling and a thing that you want to watch.
2: I'm in the cult of the master. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, no, I think Mm, it's, I think it's part of the sleight of hand uh, because it starts off and like, who gives a shit about this guy who's uh, like jacking off into the ocean and passing out drunk because he's drinking missile fuel and who gives about a shit about this guy. That's obviously running from the American government. Cause we meet him on a boat and his wife's like, this is where people don't bother him. But then you do give a shit about them because you follow them and like create these empathy experiences or these uh, experiences of total honesty or obviously somebody lying to somebody else and you as the audience member, as you like unlock that part of the scene, the movie actually like draws you in. Because Wait, can, end, did I miss
3: the part where Patches explained why he didn't have high expectations for this movie or why it's surprised I did have way. high expectations. No, I'm saying I had huge expectations. Yeah, this is, all about,
1: this is about meeting your high expectations. This exceeded
3: yeah. my expectations. Mm. Mm. Mm.
0: Either way, I think it's still very interesting just like as a portrait of... It's not like a full-on synecdoche, but a, a, a movie that's trying to operate within the thematics of its of its story. Uh, I think it, it kind of works that way from, like, us... Because, like, looking at Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I think the reason why it's so infinitely interpretable is because a lot of it oscillates between being blank and then suddenly being something very intense. And we're left to question what was the decision that clicked off in his head... To make him do that. And I don't think there's ever a point in the movie where they really come down uh, and say that any of those assumptions the audience has made is correct, which is an amazing empathy move. But like the fact that you think that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is coming off more like a Willy Wonka and not as a charlatan who's being controlled by his wife because he just likes to drink and wish he could fuck somebody else is the magic of this movie.
2: Amy think, Adams is really good in it too. She and is incredibly really good. In it. That scene where she's jerking him off and just screaming in his face i just like, I, I, I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought she was kind of underwritten as a character, and certainly there are reviews like that.
3: Uh, points to be made but
2: i don't know she's working in the shadows. she's pulling all the strings she's yeah. frightening as hell
3: i really yeah. resent melania for not being an amy adams type you know <laughs> like for like so clearly wow. not pulling the strings you don't know behind the scenes now i feel like we we would probably have yeah. a sense i've seen her that. decorating skills
1: she is neither pulling the strings nor secretly wishing to escape and take down her husband
3: <laughs> yeah i think that's true that. um and uh yeah i, I resent her for that but then what am, i mean i think it's it's Incredible to see something so elusive and beguiling as this, and yet still think that every moment is arresting in its own right. I mean, like every line of this movie, every glance, every beat, no matter how perverse it might seem in the time seem at the time, uh, finds a way to stay with you. Um, it's it's not just the showboat scenes of them, uh, you know, testing one another and, and yelling at each other's faces. It's just like every every bit. Um, it's why does the movie... Itself, does
2: anyone else feel this way? That It feels like really improvised at times. I don't know the quality. It just feels like anything could happen next and they're almost coming up with it on the fly i'm not sure if that's just the spontaneity born from performance and and two people who could do anything or turn at any time um of course it is not there are also um, just amazing lines that have been crafted by paul thomas anderson and plugged in this movie this time around i was really struck by um later in the movie they're talking about his book philip c Hoffman's uh or, or lancaster dodd's book and the guy Quell is talking to is like, eh, what do you think? I chop it up and turn it into a three-page pamphlet to give away on the subways. And I'm like, oh, right. I get that. <laughs> You're making a joke for me with that one. The New York yeah. joke. <laughs> That's a good joke. Isn't good it crazy
1: that Rami Malek is in this movie, and then he and Joaquin Phoenix both win Oscars after this movie comes out. A lot, a lot of
2: Best Actor uh, real estate here.
1: Three, three Best actors. Paul Thomas in Anderson movie. knows a
3: good actor when he sees one. Um, <laughs> and and even if uh, and what's amazing about it is that for the running time of The Master, I'm convinced that Rami Malek fits that description. Um, and have uh, have never really been impressed He's by another one Master. of his performances. He's great in The Master. I mean, there's not a hair out of place. I mean, this is everyone who, even though. the People essentially the wallpaper are phenomenal in this movie. The guy's name, and it's unfortunate it escapes me because he passed away not long after this. He was in the first season of Silicon Valley and then he died and he has a that short uh cameo as the guy who uh Lancaster died calls pig fuck um at the uh at the party. It's just like like everything sort of fits into this discordant. Oh, symphony. Christopher Evan Welch. Yeah. Um yeah. man. If you haven't seen the outtake of them all in the elevator up to that party, when uh, all the outtakes are great, someone farts and they're all like in character and all they get together, it's amazing.
0: I like uh, the uh, Walking Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman unable to get through Newports. I like these minty taste and just they cannot (laughs) keep a a straight face while smoking. Say minty, it's great minty flavor. Mm. Anywho. I think this movie
2: will continue to exceed my expectations if I ever cool on it and I go and rewatch <laughs> it. It does seem to be, I don't know, is is PTA forward thinking that this feels applicable today? I mean, people have made, I, I guess if you make a movie about a cult, there's always a new cult to compare it to. And yeah, so that is and- Yeah, that was my complaint with the vow, and, is
0: how are people yeah. falling for this shit still? But-
1: Just like if you make a movie about a uh, egomaniac billionaire, there'll always be another one
3: who it's seventy plus million people fell for that shit. I mean, I
2: think that's the Uh, cult narrative that I'm thinking of. So it all it all works out. Uh, I thought you were talking about (laughs) Nexium. No, there's just the biggest cults in the world are operating.
0: If you make a movie with a giant hope blue hole into the sky that leads to space, suddenly you know there's always going to be another movie with a giant blue hole sky the space. Speaking of space, speaking of space, yeah, there we go. Space.
3: uh okay so my movie is james gray's ad astra and i picked it for this because uh well I, I had never, I, I enjoyed Two Lovers, but I never really connected to James Gray the way that I felt that I should, not just in the way that other people were, but the way that I, I felt like this is a filmmaker that I should love. He's speaking my language. He's making the kind of movies that tend to resonate with me. And there was just something there that that I found off-putting, especially in a movie that I really did not uh, jive with at all, like The Immigrant, which, you know, there's a lot of... Um, a deference to francis Ford coppola and it felt like a lot of james gray's movies were sort of in the thrall of somebody else and um that often works for me uh depending on who that someone else happens to be but i think i just wanted more of what james gray had to bring to the table and so when i saw it astra my expect you know I, I i especially at that time of year um this was right before venice last year i'm always ready for some great movies uh, and prime for them and in a place where I'm thinking more receptive to them. And I got to see at Astra uh, with two other people in a massive, uh, massive IMAX theater, you know, before Venice. And it was really the ideal place to do so. I felt like I was sitting in a black void myself. I couldn't see another human being in sight. Um, and Were
1: you at that IMAX at, Li- at Lincoln Center?
3: I was at the IMAX at the, at the, IMAX, at the uh, it's like the LIMAX at the Regal Ewok. Um, oh, so,
1: not as majestic as it could have
3: been. No, but, uh, plenty majestic. Was that movie shot for IMAX? I think it actually may have been. I don't not know. all of it, but anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I, from the moment it started, we saw that title card, one of instantly my favorite title cards ever. Um, I was just like, hell yes, I am in. But, uh, you know, I think, Something that really resonated with me, and something that made me want to go out of my way and interview James Gray uh, at Venice when I got there, was that I was sort of deep in my feelings, about to become a father, when I saw this. Uh, Elisa, my wife, was seven months pregnant at the time, and this is very much a movie about fathers and sons, and it, it resonated really strongly with the own, my own relationship with my dad, which was never hostile, but very sort of distant in in a way similar to the relationship between Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. It felt like he was very far away. There was a generational gap that may as well have been the span of Neptune and Earth. Um, And I think we had both in our our own ways wanted to penetrate it and close that gap, but um, weren't able to. And uh, I found in this movie... You know what resonated with me. I mean, I, I wrote down a couple things that I, that I wrote at the time. Uh, one sentence I'll read right now is that um, uh, Ad Astra helps to clarify things. In hindsight, it's impossible to overlook that all of Gray's recent features have been about. Oh wait, no, that's not what I wanted to write.
1: Oh wait, it is. It
3: is. It is. Um, it is. Sorry. In hindsight, it's impossible to overlook that all of Gray's recent features have been about people who risk everything in order to reach a mythic place that will supposedly make them whole. And I was, you know. Leading up to the birth of my first kid, uh, my only kid to, the, to date, as far as I know, I was thinking a lot about um, why people have kids and this idea that having a kid of my own would give me an opportunity to sort of amend some of the issues I have with my own father and also with myself and and uh, make me less self-involved and, and more empathetic and take a step back and see life from a more uh, broader perspective Um and understand the cosmos and so forth and all these things you hope this little blobby ball of a person is going to do for you. Um, And we're all always looking for these things that are going to make us whole. And it's always kind of foolish to to do so and to expect um, salvation and perspective and understanding to come from without. And so much of what Ad Astra is about, you know, and it does this in sort of atheistic terms as well, um, is about how, you know, we are all there is and and um finding that sort of strength from within. But the reason I want to talk about it in this context is just because um of how movies change with you as you get older and how uh watching at Astro Cable a couple of times in the last few weeks, I'm already starting to watch it not differently, but even more it, it hits me even more profoundly than it did only uh, you know. 12 or 13 months ago um, now that I am a father and like the, the stuff it's sort of coming at me from both sides and uh, I think a lot of the things that and I felt this way about Benjamin Button the last 15 minutes of which I caught on TV the other night like so many of the things and this also goes back to what we were talking about Orson Welles and being 25 and not knowing what you, know, what you don't know like so many of the things that I might have found uh, worth rolling my eyes at in some movies before, or in the case of Ad Astra, I know a lot of people felt this way that were just sort of cold or removed and, and made me feel like the movie was aloof. Um, you know, a- as you get older, the movies evolve with you and you might have very different reactions to them. Um, and as much as I remember sort of being nonplussed by the last 50 minutes of Benjamin Button the first time I saw it, I recognized at the time there was a movie that I wanted to revisit down the line as I got older and Benjamin Button got younger and we could see, you know, where the, the Twain might meet. Um, and just the shot of Cape Blanchett holding like two year old Benjamin Button's hand as they, he teaches sort of walk down the street. I mean, I was like sobbing to myself, um, just because of how much realer that feeling is and, and understanding the inertia of traveling in different well not different directions. I mean me and my son are traveling forward in time together, but um, but Hey,
2: congratulations.
3: Uh, thanks. <laughs>
2: uh
3: but uh uh yeah, humble brag. But uh, but also that like knowing that feeling of that moment sort of slipping through your fingers as it's happening and um sort of being a step removed from it and and still being cognizant of Someone looking at you in the same way when you were that age and, uh, and, you know, Ad Astra hit me emotionally right away, but I would think that there are a lot of people who saw it out there who may have been younger um, men in particular, although I don't want to be an essentialist about it, but this movie is obviously very geared towards a certain kind of masculinity. Um, I do think that Brad Pitt's character in this movie is as much a parody of masculinity as Tyler Durden was, but in the opposite direction, uh, where you have someone who is just completely, um, as opposed to the cartoonish idea of masculinity, this very implosive, closed-down version of it that he learned from his father. Um, And uh, I, I think that, you know, we speak so authoritatively about the movies that we see and the art that we consume because it reflects how we feel about them at the time. Uh, but I think that we sometimes, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, you know, are, are slow to recognize that, um, people who are coming at it from a different place are, are coming at it from a different place and that they are, uh, responding to it, something about it that you might not be able to feel yet, or just might not be in the orbit of ever feeling for yourself. And I think that that's just something that watching at Astra, even though I loved it right off the hop is something that felt even more true to me and uh, yeah I don't know it's a it's a really beautiful movie and I think the hero's quest is a, a fitting metaphor for somebody's relationship to to themselves and other people and especially to a parent who they um, might need to close the gap with whether or not it's going to repair the relationship and, and also to confront the feeling that even knowing all of this might not make it actually easier I mean I think so much of what resonates with me about Brad Pitt's character is that some of the things he understands logically are really difficult to put into practice. And I think any of the parents on this podcast can or listening can understand how knowing that you want to raise your kids in certain ways differently than your own parents raised you does not guarantee that you will actually be able to pull that off. Because I think so naturally we find ourselves falling into similar traps and patterns and behaving in ways that are contrary to, you know, relationships get set in certain modes and you can't pull them back. Anyway, all that stuff resonated with me with this movie um and so that's why i picked it
0: i think when i knew that this movie had me is i was watching the moon chase on mars and the not only is the chase really cool but internally in my head i i went man he keeps his bpm down he's like the perfect action hero And that's when I bought into the masculinity narrative that you're describing. And that meant that as I was going on this, what seemed to me like a heart of darkness adaptation, I was like, it's actually so much smarter if Colonel Kurtz would have, but they would have sent his son in after him. Like, that's just like the smartest fucking thing for this type of story. Um, I didn't, really think about the hero's journey specifically until I read your, your interview after I saw the movie, uh, after I rewatched the movie for this, Uh, I saw it earlier this year. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just, it's super smart and I, it's hard for me to say, I think similarly to what David's saying, if this speaks even to Katie, because the movie got me the first time around, And as a male who has a relationship with his father, I don't have a kid, but that plus hard sci-fi action sequences every once in a while so you could think things over uh, really worked for me. So it met my expectations, but I don't know if it's universal
1: well, I'm all about uh, strained relationships between men and movies. It's one of my favorite genres. So nice. I'm all on board for Ad Astra. I actually re-listened to our conversation about Ad Astra after I re-watched it. Wow. Um, because I knew, David, that you and I had like argued about its, uh, its stance on religion. And I feel like I still stand where I was before, that it has more respect for re- religion despite the you know, the message at the end of the movie, which is that go out in search of the universe for a higher power and you'll find nothing. <laughs> um, mm. But he's literally a son going out in search of a father. Yeah. Mm. Um, but what struck me, I watched the
3: it like search. I don't know if I can't remember what we it respects talked the search, about it, but it does respect it will, the, the process it, of searching.
1: Yeah, I don't think yeah. Um, but I, so I watched it the, like the week of the election, so like Wednesday, or Thursday, or everything where everything felt very like up in the air, and I was so struck by the very end of it where he gets back and he's like, "We're all we have, so let's take care of each other," and it felt mm-hmm. so moving in that mm. context. Like that was how the movie grew <laughs> with me. Um, coming back, yeah, that to it, line just like hits being, a bit differently
3: in uh, 2020, huh? Yeah, <laughs> just
1: like being in the well, yeah, I and mean, then there's like the pandemic aspect of it, but just like being in this broken country, and you know, Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones both being these people who are like, with science, we can overcome this. We can like go out into the furthest reaches of the world and solve everything. It's like, no, you're stuck here with all the people you got. So live with them and be be with them and go call Liv Tyler. Um, I I liked that. As a as a model for living, and in, in a way they hadn't hit me the last time.
2: Although this time around, I was like, "How long was he gone on his journey?"
1: <laughs> you really got into the cinema sins uh, uh, a little a extra. little bit.
2: I get I watched this like late at night, and I was a little dazed. And but I really don't understand how long it takes to get well now i googled it after it takes like 12 years to get to neptune so 12 years that back you no know, but i
1: think then, you mean in like re- in in our current life so or like the get, way it sets it up in the movie
2: yeah in the movie like how much time oh. has passed at when he leaves earth and get, then gets back to Earth?
1: wow 12 so 12 years round trip
2: no 12 years one way trip so it'd be 24 years round trip in theory
1: huh maybe they have it's faster
2: ten- travel de- those days but i don't know
0: my,
1: he, like, my blasts sense... himself back to Earth from Neptune. So, I don't know. The, that the seemed like it was The degree
0: trip. to which that This does not matter. matter. I, yeah, yeah. I, should, <laughs> I should just note, this does not
2: impact my feelings on the movie the at whole, the, all. The, and I don't the, care about the, the answer.
0: The action sequences of the movie are actually great because you have this character that isn't going to transmit to you how to feel. So, it's entirely sound design- Plus are just like recognize us, us having probably seen gravity before this and just being like, they're in the middle of nowhere. And Brad Pitt takes all these, like these action movie moments where he does things just to survive. That in my mind, I'm like, if that was me, I'd float off into space just like, because I, I stamped the wrong foot down at the wrong time. And so it's like the tension of that really ratchets up and it absolutely exists to make you not think about the science because the, the 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 science stuff is just like it. There's an antimatter engine and it's malfunctioning. Don't worry about it. We could nuke it out of existence. That fixes wave Hand not, wave.
1: It does not. And like I, give, I think it gives you things like Natasha Leone on Mars to be like, this is people. Like there's an Applebee's on the moon. Like we're not supposed to be like taking the science of it seriously. It's about humans going out into the divine and fucking it up, and then going back to realizing that the problem was humans all. You are
2: absolutely right. And, right. Right. and you know, I think James of- Gray. Oh, sorry.
3: Well, I was gonna say that moment of Natasha Leone is like the effect of that is oh my God, there's humanity even all the way out here. Uh, there's like yeah. some New York Jew on Mars. And like in that there's
1: Ruth Negga in the most beautiful yeah. loungewear you've ever seen walking That's around quite Mars. Well,
2: I was gonna say that. Oh. I feel like James Gray uses the action in this movie to to a similar degree, where it's like I I thought it had a the the ending had a profound effect because I had just been so entranced by the action and then entranced by the visuals and that like when this movie becomes poignant. I've let my guard down. I'm, I'm like, here for spectacle, and I get something else entirely. Like, you're just waiting for the aliens to show up, right? This is a red herring movie. Oh, there's a ship that's been attacked, and, like, we need to go answer the distress mm. signal. Oh, it's just baboons.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm, wait- I'm just waiting for Tommy Lee Jones to show up. I remember specifically at one point being like, oh, I could, like, stop this rewatch and do something else, and, like, checking the time and being like... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of you know stuff before well, Tommy Lee Jones, him, shows up. but
2: they keep mentioning extraterrestrials. They keep mentioning the search for other life, and what is Tommy Lee Jones doing? Like, there must be some great mystery here, and the answer is just like, "Hey, kid, lost track of time." Yeah,
3: yeah, kid. yeah. lost track of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, the, yeah. I mean, yes, patches, you're right, but I also think that's in the actual text of the movie, like Katie pointed out is. Yeah don't don't go searching for someone to save you up there whether it's your dad yeah. or your god or aliens it's not it's nobody us. saw
2: this movie what and people don't like nope. it i think i should just clear no. the air and say that i don't what's wrong with them and what's right with us what's where does this movie go wrong for people do you think it is too ponderous or I mean I guess that's what David's saying like we're I mean, just the voiceover at it from a is a lot
1: point. like you have to go you have to go into it like, being willing to embrace the voiceover as Brad Pitt like says says the themes of the movie like yeah. repeatedly which I like like it it has this effect to me it's like going to church where you just get a yes. book and you say out loud all the things that you believe um but it's a style you know it takes getting used to
3: I think it's Yeah uh, but I mean it's, it's also it's like such an introspective movie and it announces that intention right off the top and it's not like They it's, you know, one of my pet peeves in movies are movies that open and close with narration that is carrying way too much weight um, because mm -hmm. and and feels like it was just tacked on is not a fluid part of the movie. And this kind of does that. But it's so true to the spirit. I mean, the narration is laced throughout, but it's so true to his character and so, like, his internal monologue, I think, is so important uh, for us to hear. And just right off the right off the hop, to him talking about his heart rate and uh, his breathing and hearing the measured tone of his own thoughts, I mean, I think it's so crucial. And also just to set the expectation for people in the audience. And there are people who are never going to... I mean, the complete lack of cynicism, even in that title card, you know, to the stars, that Astra from the start, it's just... Um, it is mythic right away. And I think that people who have been trained to expect something like gravity um, are maybe unwilling to, to roll with that that kind of tone. But it's there. Well, David,
1: you know, my my favorite scene in Titanic is when Jack and Rose climb in that car in the bottom deck. And uh, Jack pretends to be like a cab driver and he says, where to where miss? Where to you miss? Rose and, says. She says, and, and Rose says, add Astra.
3: Rose says, add Astra, baby. Sorry, Dave, I cut you <laughs> off. What were you saying?
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, like,
0: uh, I kind of like it because like Citizen Kane, it just, opens up telling you what it's going to be and then like fucking does it uh which is i think a good
1: calls it shot (laughs) yeah
0: it's a great way to execute a movie if you have the confidence of your execution but i also think out of all the four movies on this list it had it is the least likely to exceed our listener expectations uh when they see it for the first time because Mm. i think we have the same problem that it had in theaters, which is it's hard to describe exactly what it, this movie is and what makes this movie great without it sounding like a, a platitude that Brad Pitt's going to say during one of his, like, fucking tests. It, it's uh, Yeah, but it's, it's also a movie
3: where it. Brad Pitt goes into deep fucking space to find Tommy Lee Jones, I and mean, it sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, a baboon.
3: Yeah, I mean, and the baboons definitely have uh, rubbed people the wrong way. And they maybe raised an eyebrow the first time I saw them too. But like, you know, (laughs) I didn't have a problem with it. Who am I to say? I mean, it's sort of, you know, the the same tenor of the Natasha Lyonne thing. It's like finding these traces of life on Earth this far away. um, And maybe in this case, they're still hostile to you um but you can never i mean it's 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 related to him finding a subway or an Arby's or whatever the fuck on the moon it's like wherever we go we bring ourselves and mm-hmm. uh we're we're always journeying inward no matter how far far from home we might travel and uh, so all of this is of a whole to me i mean one of the things i love about this movie is just how holistic it feels everything is serving the same core um and it it really feels like uh, a spell in that in that sense um i think you know dave I, I think what you're saying is probably right, um, but, you know, it, it would be funny how quickly this movie adopted that a, a, a reputation of being kind of stodgy um, because it just sounds on paper so fucking rad. <laughs> well,
1: pirate chase on the moon. Pirate, yeah, it's definitely awesome. a pirate it's
3: chase Fury on the moon. Fury Road on the dark side of the moon.
1: Yeah. I mean, that scene, if you showed it out of context, I think would probably feel rad. Like, it doesn't have the, like, ponderousness of the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. If, no, they, you, sh- if you showed rules. just that
0: scene, it would have gotten, uh, like, more attendance, but a lower cinema score.
3: Yeah, oh. I mean, like, oh, my God, the cinema score would have been in the toilet. I'm sure it was anyway. But, like, that, just the, even the way he shoots the action, like, the, the laser blast going through that guy's helmet right in the extreme foreground of the frame. I mean, it's so visceral and alive, and all the more so because of the lack of sound. Um, and you get the feeling that if James Gray wanted to, and I really don't get the sense that he does, I mean, he's he's much more on a Paul Thomas Anderson-like track, and this kind of felt like an outlier. Um, and they're both making movies about high school now, a period pieces. one in New York and one in L.A. Uh, it It's like he, if he wanted to, he could make just the most badass action movie for adults, and this is kind of his version of that. I, I mean, he's done several car, car chases. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah we Own the Night has, has some a great, great car chases. Chase. yeah. But I don't understand how he he keeps getting this much money to make his movies uh, because they are all expensive and none of them make any money. But I hope Mm -hmm. that continues to happen.
2: Mm -hmm. Don't don't jinx him. (laughs) I mean, he's like
1: he's on like a 10 year streak of big expensive like what? uh, The Immigrant was crazy expensive and then uh, Lost City of Z and then Lost City of Z could have made
2: money. It's on Amazon. Could it could
0: have made money. It could have made money.
1: There's no telling. It's like uh, Charles Buster Kane plans to use plans to lose a million dollars a year on his newspapers so Bezos can go fund more. Or less and he'll, he'll he
3: be out, out of money in sixty years. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: uh, 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 uh. Remember when you could make money in media anyway? Mm. <sighs> Not 80. really. Back when I was
1: tweeting about the Avengers.
2: <laughs>
1: um, That's it. That's it, guys. That's it.
2: That was our, that was our podcast. Uh, did, did uh, there, where do you think uh, Citizen Kane is on the IMDb Top 250, the new AFI Top 100? Oh,
0: my God. Oh, what a good
1: question. Where, I'm going to look that up Where right do you now. think
2: all of our movies are on the uh, IMDb Top 250?
1: We're going mean, to have to figure I can that can out. Find, David, I'm sorry. Uh, well, Ad Astra well, well, everyone... is not
2: on the list.
3: Yeah, I'm um, I'm shocked. I'm you
2: Citizen
1: Kane is at 97. It's
2: at 97 between Thomas Winterberg's The Hunt and 1917 from last year. Of course. Oh boy. <laughs> 97. Uh,
1: weirdly, Avengers, only Infinity War and Endgame are on there.
2: Yeah, yeah no That's classic wild. Avengers on this list, sadly. Uh,
1: but P- they both rank higher than Citizen Kane. <laughs>
2: The Master is not on the list. There Will Be Blood is 145. So PTA is represented. Well. Yeah, this is bleak.
0: I think that just shows that we hopefully gave some people some recommendations that we'll live up to, even though I think we talked about the ending of every single one of these movies. But that's fine.
1: <laughs> Spoilers don't
0: matter. It's all the oh, execution. But-
1: real quick the master's on netflix uh and oh, yeah. kane is on hbo max ad astra is on hbo max and adventures is on disney Plus. that's correct so if you uh all if you're into your streaming. streaming services they're all available yeah if you refuse to rent
0: yeah have a happy november and until next time here's where you can fi- follow us all on twitter we're gonna start with matt patches
2: Oh, my God. I am Matt Patches. I am an editor at Poly. You're supposed to keep this quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just oh, say just
0: their Nobody you cares You can find what me at Parler, uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> at Mr. Patches.
0: And David Ehrlich.
3: Uh, David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Easy. Miss Katie Rich.
1: Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-C-H.
0: And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me at DA7E. And that was a Fighting in the War Room quell We'll see you next week. I'll use the word
2: baby. 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 Baby.
3: Baby. 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 We're dealing with babies, okay? We're going to take care of those babies. Have you ever kidnapped
0: a baby? Don't worry about that baby. I love babies. I gently tell a woman that I love her baby. I love babies. I love babies. I love babies. I love babies.
1: I hear that baby crying, I
3: like to let the
1: baby cry. <coughs> I love to hear baby crying. Uh bum 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 now and done. I'm done. We're done.